0: Voices that inspire the extended interview.
1: Marshall Cap, a retired professor from Florida State University. I taught in both the College of Medicine and the College of Law. My area is health law, medical ethics, health policy, and that sort of thing.
0: So it sounds like you have found the perfect retirement activity that plays on your knowledge and your expertise and is a real benefit to people in need. you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Uh, Yes. Um, When I retired about five years ago, I decided to become a volunteer with the long-term care ombudsman program because I thought it would be meaningful for me. I thought uh, I would be needed uh, by people uh, who are dependent and, and vulnerable and uh, that based on my background and my interests and my talents, I would have something to offer.
0: So you've been with it now for five years. So what have what have you learned through being part of this program?
1: Uh, I've learned, I think, that uh, people who, uh, through no fault of their own, have uh, disabilities or, or mental or physical problems that uh, cause them to be in long-term care facilities really do need uh, an advocate. Uh, the big danger is that they m- feel forgotten and, and might be forgotten. And uh, it's important that we uh, remember that these are still people who uh, need our support, need our advocacy, and uh, we can make a difference in their lives.
0: So how many ombudsmen are there like for this region?
1: Uh, for this district, uh, I'd say close to a dozen or so volunteers, uh, a small staff, a district office manager and, and her assistant. Uh, but the program really depends very heavily on volunteers.
0: So in doing this work, what kind of things do you do? Like how do you help support some of these people who are in these long care facilities?
1: Well, um, there are a number of activities that the ombudsman does. Uh, primarily, we go in and we visit with residents uh, periodically and remind, and make them aware of the ombudsman program and that we're available if uh, they need help with particular problems. And in general, just let them know that somebody is looking out for them and somebody still remembers them and cares for them. And I think that has a a positive impact on the staff as well because the staff is reminded that somebody from the outside is uh, looking out for these folks and and advocating for them. And uh, it helps the staff to to do a better job uh, as well. So uh, I think that's a big part of it. And then there are specific case investigations when – Uh, a resident or a family member or somebody else acting on behalf of a resident uh, files a complaint over a specific matter, we go in and we investigate and we try to uh, prevent problems before they become big problems.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think these types of programs are just so invaluable to help citizens who need help. You know, not everybody's so fortunate in life.
1: Right. There are a lot of people who just aren't able to speak for themselves. There's are still people. They still have uh, uh, decisions they want to make. They still have opinions. They still have uh, ways that they want to spend their their time and be treated, uh, but they're not able to speak for themselves, and uh, that's largely what we try to do.
0: So, you know, you've been doing it for five years. That's a commitment. That's a lot of time. How much time do you put into this usually on a given month?
1: Well, for any particular volunteer, the time commitment uh, just varies. The, uh, the program, uh, the professional staff, is very uh, solicitous of the fact that we are volunteers. So you can really spend as much time or as little time as, as you want, depending on your particular schedule. But uh, I would say the equivalent of maybe two or three days a month uh, when you when you add up uh, the time that, that we spend, uh, including travel and including writing up the inevitable documentation that uh, that follows uh, our activities.
0: So your your fellow volunteers, do they come from all walks of life or you know what what do you think motivates people to get involved?
1: Um, volunteers do come from all walks of life. Uh, a number of our former, Healthcare professionals, uh, nurses, social workers, therapists, uh, folks like that. Uh, people uh, get interested because they had family members that uh, they either cared for at home or or uh, were in long term care facilities for a while. Uh, many are just civic minded people who were looking for something meaningful to do, and uh, this was uh, this was a good alternative for them. So they they come from all all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of uh, motivations. Usually, there's a story behind uh, everybody's everybody's uh, getting involved, uh, one way or the other.
0: So, this series is called Voices that Inspire. Has there been any person you've advocated for or? What's inspired you personally? I mean, I know you felt like you had the expertise to do this work, but what's inspired you to continue to do it?
1: Well, I think uh, every time we get involved with a resident visit or a complaint investigation, we have the opportunity to improve the quality of life for somebody. That doesn't mean we're always going to be successful. And uh, I accept the fact that sometimes we're we're not going to have universal satisfaction, but at least there's the opportunity to uh, improve somebody's life. And uh, I'm, I'm inspired by uh, the people that I meet uh, in these facilities. It's, Unfortunate that I didn't know them earlier when they were younger and they were more active, uh, and they were practicing professions. Uh, but uh, they're still people, and uh, still need to have somebody advocating for them.
0: So you've had a long career in the academic setting of you know teaching around public health law issues around that. What's your sense of the state of the state of our public health system? You know, you, you've seen it from different angles. I'm kind of curious what you, where you think things stand.
1: Well, public health is very important. Prior to COVID, most of the population couldn't spell public health. Now everybody is aware of the importance of public health. Unfortunately, during uh, the COVID, uh, the height of the COVID pandemic, Um, There were a lot of problems uh, with uh, the public health establishment uh, doing what it was supposed to be doing and communicating what it was supposed to be doing. And uh, there were a variety of of reasons for that. Uh, So I think that um, there is definitely an opportunity and a necessity for the public health establishment to reestablish some of the credibility that it unfortunately lost during the covid uh, pandemic height
0: yeah and i think you know if you look back i think we've been underfunding public health and then we have a crisis and we expect them to jump to it just like that but you know that's a challenge as well when you have something as huge as covid come along
1: yes and uh, the pub- public health establishment really wasn't prepared for uh, something like COVID, even though they should have been, because that's why we have a CDC. That's why we have a state health department. Uh, but it's it such a rare event uh, that uh, we really weren't prepared for it. And then, of course, you know, inevitably there's mission creep and uh, political influences and uh, just the nature of bureaucracy as well that... Uh, that impeded optimal response.
0: So in your years of of teaching young people who are thinking about career paths and passions that they may feel about health or getting involved, what would your advice to students who are looking at opportunities in public health? Like what did you feel your role was as a professor in encouraging or not or just teaching? Did what I'm just curious about like there's so much about career Training now, like you know, and you get these young people coming into college. How do you help prepare them for the wild and woolly world of <laughs> healthcare?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think we ought to be encouraging people who are interested in healthcare generally, medicine in particular, uh, about uh, the opportunities in public health and, and the importance of, uh, of being involved. In public health. Um, Interestingly, a lot of uh, colleges and universities now have public health programs both at the undergraduate level, which never existed uh, 30 years ago, uh, as well as the graduate level, and those programs are very popular. My alma mater at Johns Hopkins University, that's where I went undergraduate, today the most popular undergraduate major is public health. And uh, it didn't exist when I was there a million years ago.
0: Do you think that's a direct result of COVID? Like just young people saying, I need to get involved? I mean, where do you, why do you think that has shifted so much?
1: I think in, in, for many uh, colleges and universities, uh, Johns Hopkins, which I mentioned uh, specifically, the interest in public health uh, as, a, as an educational area predated Covid, uh, somewhat not by much, but uh, you know maybe ten or ten or twelve years, um, for for a variety of reasons, I think uh, people started to become aware of the importance of uh, of public health and, and how it permeates uh, almost every aspect of of our lives, uh, in in, in intersects and 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 uh, is involved with uh, everything else. Uh, that we that we do,
0: yeah, absolutely. It, it became much more. We all became much more aware of the importance of uh, public health through these last years. So, I just to wrap this up. I'm I'm curious for you know someone listening. You're a retiree, and you have found something meaningful to do in retirement. As people start thinking that the, some listener might be thinking, okay, I'm thinking of retirement. What am I going to do with my time? Especially you had a very, you know, active career. What's your advice to someone who's on that, you know, precipice of retirement staring them down? Um, what, what advice would you give?
1: Well, as a, I think as you plan for retirement, um, there's no shortage of uh, options for spending your time uh, both productively and, uh, and unproductively. Uh, but certainly there, there are a plethora of uh, opportunities for uh, productive uh, use, meaningful use of your retirement time. I would say don't rush into a million things. Don't sign up for a million things. Be careful of, uh, of what you get involved in and, and really be thoughtful uh, about deciding how you're going to volunteer your time—it's uh, your time, so it's valuable. If you uh, waste time, it's not your boss's time you're wasting anymore. It's your time, so that's valuable. So get the most out of it. Do your do your homework and uh, try some different things. And uh, if you find that it's not a good fit uh, with a particular activity, move on to something else.
0: Good advice. Well, I want to thank you for coming in and sharing a little bit about. The work you're doing with the ombudsman program, and thank you for doing that. It's a really important service to so many people, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me.
1: You're welcome. I'm Marshall Capp, a retired professor from Florida State University. Uh, Health law was my area, and I was in the College of Medicine and the College of Law at FSU.